Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, October 20th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, and we are 32 days away from our 11th annual roast in New York City. The roast is of Mayor Sully Soloveitchik, rabbi of the oldest congregation in the United States, genius, academic, PhD, uh, commentary columnist on Jewish matters, uh, currently doing a 365-day-a-year podcast dedicated to the Bible and uh, a person of, of such accomplishment that he deserves to be taken down some pegs. And that's what we do at our roast. We've done it now for more than a decade. The first was, was, was in 2010. Roasties have included Jonah Goldberg, Ben Shapiro, Charles Krauthammer, Dick Cheney, Joe Lieberman, and many others, and now they will be joined by Sully Soloveitchik. Join us. Go to commentary.org slash roast21 for information on how to attend. This is not a cheap ticket. This is our single most important fundraising event of the year. Commentary is a nonprofit institution, and we rely on you in two ways, one of which is that you subscribe at commentary.org and help us keep the lights on and do what we're doing. And the other is the elemosinary generosity of our donors. And this is a way that you can give to commentary and have a fantastic, fun, exciting, off-the-record evening with hundreds of people who are like-minded and share your love of commentary, of America, of Israel, uh, and of Western civilization all together for the first time in two years in person uh, at a venue that you will find out about when you actually decide to buy a ticket. So commentary.org slash roast 21. And you know who will probably be there, though we haven't, I don't, I don't know if he's confirmed yet, is our guest today, Tevi Troy, longtime commentary uh, contributor. Uh, who is one of the people uh, who has written an article in our Woke the Threat issue. Tevi, welcome to the Commentary Podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me, John, and I will indeed be there, and I look forward to it. Okay, and of course, here to grill Tevi along with me, uh, uh, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. So, Tevi, credentialize yourself for our audience. Why are you, Tevi Troy, in a position to be writing this article that we have entitled Wokeness MD? Well, the number one reason is because you asked me to do it, John. So, uh, yes, I think but that why did I ask credential. you, Tevi? Why? But, why did I ask you? But you asked me, A, because I'm a former deputy secretary of health and human services and an expert in health policy. But I've also written many articles about healthcare for commentary over this last decade. And I think combination of uh, me having this record of writing for you and my expertise in healthcare are a good, a good start. And then I also have been writing a little bit about this issue of wokeness. I wrote a long piece for our friend Yuval Levin's magazine, um, Wokeness Today, and how it compares to the political correctness battles of the late 80s, early 90s. Right. Okay. So this piece very specifically focuses on the medical community, not public health, but doctors, medical schools, hospitals, and the, um, the effort that wokeness is making to change their focus, change their direction, and change the way that they do the things that they do. And you uh, highlight several uh, pretty horrifying anecdotes, I would say, um, about uh, efforts to take long-standing, uh, 2,500-year-old ideas about how medicine is supposed to work. To which I'm referring, of course, to the Hippocratic Oath, um, and revising them in light of the most fashionable contemporary ideas. So can you illuminate us on some of that? Yeah, I think that's a good summary. And especially your point at the beginning that this is an effort to undermine. I am not arguing in the article that 
you shouldn't go to your doctor. Your doctor's not going to treat you correctly or uh, neutrally because of race. I'm arguing that there appears to be an effort underfoot to change the way medical doctors and health professionals approach the profession. And it's a dangerous one and one we should call out. And I really look at it in terms of three major areas. Number one is are doctors treating patients equally and not giving preference to somebody based on race? And again, I argue that that is not happening yet, but there seems to be some worrisome tendencies, including an incident in Boston where two doctors recommended treating non or people of color more preferentially than, than non-people of color. Uh, and then uh, is research an area in which you can actually have honest scientific dialogue and it's becoming more and more disturbing. And I talk about this peer reviewed article by a guy named Norman Wang, who talked about some of the challenges of affirmative action and how it has not been necessarily working in, in de developing the best doctors. And he was basically canceled and fired for doing that and is suing his institution. And then the third question is about training. Are we training doctors? And you know, there's a famously difficult boot camp that doctors have to go through in order to be able to practice medicine. And are we going to change the standards because of some kind of woke ideals? And again, in all three of these areas, I find worrisome signs. And these are things that should be called out, but I'm not saying don't go to your doctor at this point. So um, in terms of the uh, preferential option, let's say that you that you talk about in in Boston uh, an experimental program proposed at Brigham and Women's Hospital um, preferential treatment literally was the idea and this 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 has a weird echo of 1960s 1970s radical catholic doctrine which was the preferential option for the poor meaning that the poor needing needing the care and concern of the church more uh, than, than the wealthy, that, that, that policies and ideas about how to save souls and all that should be, should, should, should be viewed through a preferential option for the poor. And here we have literally the term preferential treatment to patients of color. Um, so the spokesman uh, from the hospital, uh, you, you relate, told the Washington Free Beacon that that initiative was not currently underway. However, uh, tell us about Dr. Michelle Morse, one of the authors of this proposal, and what she is doing now. Well, uh, she left that hospital. She did not get her plan put in place, but now she is a senior official in, uh, in I believe, New York City's public health department. So uh, she gets promoted for this idea rather than being rebuked for the idea, which, again, is a very problematic one. Um, you also mentioned uh, the psychiatrist at the Yale School of Medicine, Aruna Kalilani, um, who literally gave a talk called The Psychopathic Problem of the White Mind, in which she discusses fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way as I walked away relatively guiltless with a bounce in my step like I did the world a favor. Uh, and uh, as far as I know, despite Yale's disavowing of her of this talk, I'm sure her career will not be adversely affected by it, despite the fact that this is actually <laughs> something that she literally said that her fantasy life involved shooting white people in the head and then walking away with a bounce in her step. Yeah, but it wasn't just that, that she said it, which is indeed disturbing, but that she was invited by Yale to give this lecture. It's not like she was saying it over coffee with two friends. I mean, she gave this lecture at Yale and Yale was uncomfortable with it after as they should have been. But it's this kind of, of sentiment that is really disturbing. And the idea that a person like this would be given the that kind of platform at Yale is, is a real problem. So we have these. So what we have here is the um, the question of institutions and the people that they hire and that they promote and the, whose words they they promote here. So we have uh, Yale asking uh, asking her to give a talk. We have Dr. Morris of Brigham and Women's making this astounding proposal and then getting a job in the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene probably as a result of it, because her purpose is to advance race equity, as she says. Um, and so the institutions may themselves hew to an older understanding in which obviously medicine is to be practiced solely and exclusively on the bounds of 
treating the sick who are sick as they come at you, right? I mean, basically, you you deal with people as they are in front of you and treat them. And that is the secret of holding toward a more systematic theory, you know, to, toward this theory of a more systematic approach of favoring one type of patient over another. Yeah, I mean, what, what, one of the basic principles of medical treatment is triage, right? You assess the patients as they come in and you determine who needs the most help. And that is based on how ill they are or what kind of uh, treatment they require and how urgent it is. And it shouldn't be based on what your intersectionality characteristics are. I mean, the, the whole idea is doctors are supposed to treat patients in a way to get the best results for the patients. And this is one, one of the reasons why I argue in the article that wokeness, maybe you can apply it to law or to art or to academia. And I, I don't approve of any of those things, but in medicine, it just fundamentally can't work because you're about saving lives and saving lives is a binary thing. Are you, are you saving the life or are you not? And wokeness just doesn't fit in and actually is detrimental to the effort. And is, uh, just a uh, question, because isn't there also a weirdly counterproductive effect of uh, this idea of preferential treatment when it's when it comes to medical training? You have a really good section in your piece about medical schools and and what's gone going off the rails there with these these arguments. But there are also particular conditions and diseases that affect particular populations based on race or ethnicity much more acutely. So, you know, there's sickle cell anemia, for example, is more common among African-Americans. PKU deficiencies are more common among white and, and Native Americans than they are among, you know, Black Americans or, or Japanese Americans. So there are actually conditions based on, you know, kind of group genetics that are more uh, acute for some populations than others. And I, I could imagine a, a scenario where if you're going to say, not that certain groups will get preferential treatment, but in the training and teaching about these, that would be viewed as racist, right? To say that certain groups are vulnerable to certain things, or it would at least complicate what should be a purely scientific and medical training decision about how to train doctors to look for these conditions. Yeah, it's a good question, Christina. I would say it's, it's more the latter. It complicates things. It makes it such that perhaps if there is a condition that is extra detrimental to people of color, then that condition would get extra consideration. Whereas if something was extra detrimental to people who are not of color, then th those people wouldn't get that consideration. I think what doctors have to do, and it's a complicated calculation, is figure out is this a condition that is harmful? I will look at this person's race to determine the medical necessity of a particular treatment based on what studies say that race has to do with it, but not based on some sense that this person has been historically underrepresented in various professions and should get extra treatment in the emergency. I mean, I was, one of the, oh, go ahead, sorry. Just briefly, I was consistently reminded in reading your article, Tevi, of how <clears throat> medicine was practiced in the Soviet Union um, insofar as there was a, a, the, a single employer, the state was your primary employer, uh, medical professionals were, uh, after 1971, uh, obliged to take an oath that read, I will, my actions will be guided by the principles of communist morality ever to bear in mind the high calling of the Soviet physician and my responsibility to the people of the Soviet state. And this resulted in a, a stultified intellectual culture in which charlatans and pop intellectual theories became medical dogma. Opponents of those theories were, were rooted out. And this was most evident, apparently, in, in uh, the practice of psychiatry, that it was used primarily to advance ideological objectives up to and including the anathematization of people who had medical issues, perhaps, or did not, but who were genuinely opponents of the state needed to be sidelined or at least debilitated to the point where they couldn't represent a problem for an emerging ideology. Uh, and that would be facilitated even more if we, if the progressives had their way and uh, the state was once again, the primary employer of doctors in this country, if we had a Medicare for all system, whereas where the, we'd have a monopoly employer in the medical profession, uh, combined with what you've uncovered, it's a very scary prospect. Yeah, I mean, well, you do have doctors as employees of the state in some Western countries, for example, in, in England with the public health service. Uh, but it's 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 so that's not inherently problematic, although I disagree with it as a policy matter. But to combine that with the principles of a state or the principles of a woke regime 
plus employment by the state. That's a really scary prospect. And I do have that quote uh, that Rod Dreher uncovered from a doctor who had served in the Soviet U Union or in the Soviet system and said that he's seeing disturbing similarities in American medicine today, where there are certain treatments that cannot be questioned because the overall conventional wisdom within the woke Uber lords is that this is the way to approach certain types of patients. And this has to do with, with uh, uh, transgender uh, patients, for example. And that, that doctor said that he's just getting a scary reminder of what he escaped from. I think um, it just want to, it's an important point to make that that's happening simultaneous, simultaneously with um, the popularization of this idea that you must trust science and you must, particularly the medical science, uh, and not to take um, the, the prevailing uh, medical uh, wisdom at its word um, is, is to have an anti-scientific cast of mind. When in fact, at the moment, um, the, the scientific process and, and, and the advice that comes out of it um, I think um, is probably in some danger of being less valid than it was because one is not permitted to dissent from within on, on certain theories and issues. Yeah, it's a great point, Abe. And I do have that quote in the, in the book from, uh, from our, our friend, Jonathan Roush, sorry to Eli Lake for uh, citing the book, but uh, the, uh, the quote is about how Western medicine developed through a process of questioning. You question the results and you test the results to make sure you're getting the right answers. And if there is some kind of received wisdom that you cannot question, we're not gonna get better treatments. We're not gonna be able to test the questions in the coronavirus, for example, with is remdesivir an effective treatment? If it's, if it's received from on high that this thing is a good treatment, then it must be accepted. Whereas you have to do the hard work, the clinical trials, the testing and the questioning. I remember early on in coronavirus, there was this obsession with ventilators, right? Everyone has to get ventilators. And then we actually did the testing and found that ventilators had a very high incidence of leading to death. They were not necessarily effective and that we found that putting patients in the prone position was much more effective. So even vaccine aside, we are much better today at treating coronavirus because of the scientific method of doctors who were testing different approaches and seeing what worked and then sharing that information with other medical professionals in other cities. I think we have to tease out several different lines of inquiry here. So one of them is the question of this application of uh, preferential treatment for minorities, let's say. Um, which, by the way, has a, has a very interesting and weird tinge to it, because if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, the two leading uh, medical crises uh, in the African-American community are heart disease and diabetes, which is very much true, I believe, of the non-African-American community as well. And it would be hard to find a disease for which there is more, there has been more innovative treatment and, and, and a greater degree of um, positive outcomes for these degenerative diseases than heart disease with statins and diabetes with all of this, these range of type two diabetes um, drugs that lower people's A1C numbers and effectively kind of like claw back diabetes or even end it. Um, these are positive stories about treatments that are effective for all races and particularly, I would say, disproportionately important for the African-American community, which suffers from them disproportionately. And instead, we are given this kind of cock and bull story about how they are, they are not, the, the conditions and causes of their illnesses are not given equal sway with the problems uh, of white people, right? So that that's one. So that's one strand. The other strand then is about sort of training, testing, and institutions. Will institutions offer preferential place to people of color uh, and and others? Um, as you say, sort of like in this boot the boot camp atmosphere of how you get through, you know, internship and residency and medical school and all of that people forget that um, the, the most important affirmative action case in American history, the, uh, the, the Bakke versus the University of California, 
was about medical school admission. And the whole question there, I think, was it was sort of presumed as a matter of course that of all the things in the world that you wanted there to be meritocratic admission to, it would be medical school because you are literally handing the responsibility for life and death into the hands of people who are going to be trained at these schools and then accredited essentially by these schools or by the process that that comes out of them. And therefore, that admission to these places needs to be given, you know, taken with the highest of seriousness for the reasons you say. It's one thing to like play these games with law schools, but you're literally putting, you know, tools of death in the hands of doctors if they're used improperly or if they're if the medication is improperly administered or whatever. And so there's no screwing around here and playing, you know, playing political games because the consequences are just too important. Right. So that's the second strand. So there's like there's like preferential treatment. There's preferential positioning, let's say. And then there is the politically correct disease question or the politically correct treatment question, which gets to the transgenderism and the fact that there is increasing evidence that uh, without sufficient evidence, uh, in particular, minors are being given medications and treatments uh, that are actively harmful to them later in life on the basis of a psychological theory that says that they would be better off allowing, you know, uh, having having medicine help them achieve this aim of changing their gender, right? So there are sort of three different strands of wokeness that that pose that pose a threat. Is one worse than the other? Well, do you think uh, this is the reason why I broke the article up into those three areas of inquiry? Uh, I think that the first, the one, this idea that you treat patients differently based on their intersectional characteristics is the one that is most abhorrent to us in terms of Western civilization and the ideas that we've passed on and the Hippocratic Oath. And you know, I have that uh, quote there from uh, from the Death Wish movie where um, where they try to show that Bruce Willis is a good character early on because they, they're they going to have to show it given his later. This is the answer. second Death Wish movie, right. not the right. first. Not Death the Charles Wish Bronson, movie. of course. Yeah. But uh, they try to show that he's a good character by having him treat the murderer of a police officer just after he failed to save the police officer himself. And then, and then the cop who's the partner of the murdered police officer questions it. Bruce Willis is, is adamant. This is what he's going to do. He is going to save that, that person's life. So I think that's the one that's most abhorrent. Uh, the most dangerous, although this one, the first one is dangerous, is whether if we change scientific inquiry based on woke principles, meaning if we can't really question the development of treatment, then you're going to have a loss of medical innovation and you're not going to have new treatments that could potentially save hundreds and thousands, if not millions of lives down the road. So I think both of them are are dangerous. The first one's more abhorrent. The second could have more downstream effects. But I think the one that's most advanced in the real world um, has to do with the the, the treatment of of trans patients, right? I mean, because this is no longer, you know, um, about policy that's being proposed and then uh, tabled and then and then shut down. This this is there are there are they are actively treating uh, trans patients in many cases kids um, in in ways that that um, there's a great deal of evidence to say is very detrimental and doing so without parents uh, 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 say. Um, in fact, you know, treating parents as the en- enemies here, and I think. So in terms of an active sort of damage, um, that, that to me seems the, the most advanced. I, I agree with you, Abe. It is probably the most advanced from what we're seeing, but it's also a relatively small percentage of the population. I mean, if there's some kind of widespread policy to treat people of color more preferentially than non-people of color, that would have a much greater impact society-wide. Also, if you uh, have this loss of scientific inquiry across the medical development and drug development, medical device development field, then again, that would have huge downstream effects across the population. So uh, I think that's kind of perhaps a beachhead, the issue that you're talking about, a small, a relatively small area where this concept is is most advanced and indeed worrisome. There's also 
there also seems to be a weird elision taking place in public health where, and I sent uh, on our little text chain the other day, I sent you guys a, a thread about a New York public health official saying, you know, racism is going to be declared a public health issue. And there's all these things we should do because racism is a public health issue. That's one strand, but there are other strands in terms of sort of general wellness and well-being for individual patients. There are lots of sociological theories, which are fascinating and interesting and, and probably a great deal of truth to some of them about, uh, you know, for, for Black women in particular, it's called weathering, you know, this idea that generations of of discrimination and stress caused them to have lower birth weight babies and all these other health problems, which again, there's, there's something to that. And there's certainly also biological research being done that, that tries to prove this or not, but these are sociological uh, projections that are put on medicine to try to ostensibly help caregivers give better care. But the way that they, when they're filtered through the lens of intersectionality, they often come out on the other end as there's nothing you can do as an individual. Like you're just, it's this structural oppression. It's this generations of racism. It's terrible legacy of slavery. So as an individual hearing from one's caregiver, if one's caregiver or doctor has been trained in this way of talking about personal health, I think there are a lot of things that that feel overwhelming and, and that individuals then can't take control of their own health because they're hearing these messages. And, and you do see these in the literature here and there. But for me, the, the thing that strikes me is that it's well and good to have other disciplines informing medicine. But at the end of the day, we need, as you say, Tevi, proof and questioning and, and, and real evidence that this stuff is actually good for patients. Yeah, that's a great point, Christine. And it also gets into another issue that is something that, that uh, worries me, which is this whole idea that everything's a public health crisis and CDC is looking at all kinds of things, whether you wear motorcycle helmets and whether you have big gulp sodas and whether you smoke or vape and everything is a public health crisis. And they lose sight of what the actual big public health crises are, because as we saw with SARS-CoV-2, this thing came, CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, is supposed to stop these kinds of things from spreading in the U.S. And I'm not sure they could have completely stopped this because it's a particularly wily and difficult virus but they really did fall down on the job, especially in the early days with not only their inability to create a workable test, but their arrogance about not letting anybody else create a workable test. So if you focus on all these things and call everything a public health crisis that you don't like politically, and you don't focus on what is really a public health crisis, which is a communicable disease that has killed 700,000 Americans and millions worldwide, then you are not doing a service to medicine and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing in terms of advancing public health. You know, uh, one of the great sources that I used to track COVID over the first year, as I mentioned almost daily last year, was David Bonson's daily newsletter, the dctoday.com and his weekly newsletter, dividendcafe.com, where along with his uh, political and economic analyses, he was sort of charting the course of of COVID in a uh, bracing and original way in which he was actually looking at hard numbers and breaking them down by state and all of that and raising questions about uh, how the public health protocols were or were not having any kind of a uh, conducive effect uh, in mitigating the disease or in helping defray the kinds of decisions that were being made uh, that were harming the economy without showing much in the way of results. And we're, we're back here now a little bit. I want to talk about this right after I, I finish talking about this, but we're back in this as we move into the question of vaccinating uh, kids. And, um, and so I just think if you, if you want um, uh, to, to have a, a daily uh, examination of the American economy, of regulation, uh, and of the crises facing the country on a day-to-day -day basis, you really, you really owe it to yourself to go to dividendcafe.com and sign up for David Bonson's two newsletters, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. They go through what's going on in the markets. They go through what's going on with legislation affecting the economy and taxpayers and re regulations and all of that. But they also take a larger look at the United States and the things that are going on in it in a, in a really uh, original way. So uh, that's the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com from the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Now, um, this morning on the Today Show, I heard Dr. Vivek Murthy, the, um, the Surgeon General of the United States, talking about the 
uh, Biden administration's new push uh, or that they're already preparing for the push to vaccinate kids between five and 11, pending the final approval of whichever seven committees have to approve, have issued the final approval. And and um, this is an interesting PR campaign that they're up to because they're releasing evidence and data and information about it, um, clearly to try to change the subject and change some of the PR uh, disasters that have befallen the Biden administration over the last five or six weeks. So it's like, uh, you know, where he says we're working really hard. We're, you know, to get have answers for parents with uh, doctors and teachers and nurses and healthcare professionals. And I've asked some doctors and teachers and parents and healthcare professionals, and I haven't heard that actually anybody is working very hard with anybody on answering any questions that you can't answer just by reading the newspaper. That's just that kind of argle bargle nonsense that, you know, maybe he had a meeting with three people in his office and that then stood for the, you know, 10 million people involved in healthcare in the United States. Um, but I, I want to, talk about this whole question of public health and what it's done to sort of <laughs> to its own reputation moving off this a little bit because i want to quote to you from what he said i mean he said um we do know that every child vaccinated makes a difference that every child who's vaccinated is is, is one fewer child who is susceptible to the risk we see right now where so many kids have gotten COVID, thousands have been hospitalized, and sadly, we've lost hundreds of children to COVID, so this is not a benign illness. Okay, Tevi, you mentioned 700,000 people have died in the United States from COVID, of whom fewer than 500 under the, are under the age of 18. 500 is the numerator and 700,000 is the denominator. I'm not even sure that you can come up with a percentage point low enough to describe that. I am in favor of vaccinating five to 11 year olds. I have an 11 year old. I'm excited for him to get the vaccine. Do I actually think that he is at real risk of getting COVID being hospitalized and dying? I do not. I want him to get it on the basis of the freak possibility that something absolutely untoward might happen. And because I believe based on 18 months of this, that until we get these absolute numbers of vaccinations up to a high enough number, these people who are in charge of our public health talk are not going to let us out of this nightmare that they are in part the you know gatekeepers of. They are not going to let our kids take their masks off. They are not going to let them do things. And Vivek Murthy literally said this. He said, quote, let's also remember Savannah, not speaking to me, but to Savannah Guthrie, uh, that COVID has disrupted our kids' lives. It made school harder. It's disrupted their ability to see friends and family. It's made youth sports more challenging. By getting our kids vaccinated, we have the prospect of protecting them, but also of getting all of those activities back. Well, who made school harder? Who disrupted their ability to see friends and family? And who made youth sports impossible? That wasn't done for the benefit of the children. We knew six months into this that this was unusual or freakish when it came to uh, epidemics in world history that it went after the old and not the young epidemics usually hit the young who also have compromised immune systems it wasn't happening kids were being used as a tool for social control in my opinion and i've i've surrendered to that Word. so huh? yeah it's not past tense it's present tense R. 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 okay i okay. share all of these concerns but it's a constant struggle with rationality to observe them, because if you were to behave based on the level of risk presented to young children um, like by COVID, by reacting strongly to it, you would be consumed with freak possibilities that could harm your children all over the place, everywhere. You wouldn't let them go in a pool. You wouldn't let them ride on the school bus. You wouldn't let them have, you know, uh, certain certain foods. 
it's a sort it's a constant struggle against your own rational impulse to internalize low levels of risk and com compartmentalize them and COVID is just one of many of those risks presented to young children and not especially prominent considering all the other uh, communicable diseases that are that are threatening to young children far more threatening in fact second the notion that these people will loosen the reins on society if a certain number of people get vaccinated is betrayed by all the other times they said that your freedom would be given to you based on the certain threshold of vaccination rates that were met exceeded and then suddenly the goalposts changed they would do that again it, it, it's, it's you would have to ignore all past uh evidence to believe that they'll somehow loosen the reins of control in society based on an arbitrary threshold that's met of vaccinating young children it is it is an excuse at this point and bargaining to accept that as somehow irrational rational belief on the part of policymakers. I don't believe they're making policy dependent on on the number of people who are vaccinated at this point. Tevi, you have any uh, any response to our bizarre, we're anti, 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 anti-vax. I don't even know where we are on this because I'm pro-vax, but, but I'm pro-vax for reasons that have to do with, I don't think that the vax is going to harm my kid. And all things being equal, I think that his life will be materially improved by getting vaccinated because he will be a cog in a chain or whatever i don't think a cog is on a chain but you he, he will be he will be what a chink in a chain that will uh, allow kids to go back to leading a normal life look i'm also pro-vax but i do wonder about the need to get kids 5 to 11 vaccinated for your individual kid and i'm not talking about your kid per se john but for one individual kid it is a rational decision to get them vaccinated because then they are allowed to rejoin free society as it, as it were. But as you also said, there are very few instances of kids dying from this disease. It is mostly a disease that affects older people, particularly the elderly, although people at, at younger ages over 18 have been, have been getting it and some have died as well. So I, I think that the problem I think was well articulated by Noah with this whole idea that there's been a changing of the goalposts. And if you recall, there was 15 days to stop the spread. There was an initial idea. We don't want the hospitals to be overwhelmed. And now the, the goal appears to be zero cases ever. And that's not really a realistic goal with any type of disease. We don't go for zero cases of flu. We try to mitigate the impact of flu and get people vaccinated so that people, not as many people die from it. We still do have tens of thousands of people die from flu every year, but we try ah. to limit the effects. Ah, but Tevi, you have not yet read the, uh, the uh, article in the Atlantic that came out this morning by someone uh, whose work I've not seen before named Jacob Stern in which he reveals that according to healthcare statistics last year, uh, we saw the lowest number of flu cases on record uh, and the lowest number of flu deaths on record. I think it was something like 2000, whereas you might expect 30,000 in, in, in an average year. And so the question is, were the mitigation measures against COVID responsible for this incredible uh, shrinking of, um, of, of flu cases, and therefore, do we need to continue with similar mitigation strategies in perpetuity to prevent not only the flu, but the spread of colds? Because yes, you see, they, yeah. because you see if we all w walked around masking and you know staying home when we sneezed from work, nobody would get the flu and nobody would get colds. So shouldn't we really consider this as an option? We are 18 months into the COVID regime in which we have seen record numbers of mental health hospitalizations of teenagers that almost everybody attributes to the dislocations of living under the terms of this pandemic. We have seen you know, freakish rises in crime and suicide and all kinds of social disruptions. And we now have our thinking classes wondering how we can make permanent the emergency measures that, as you said, were once proposed for 15 days. We're going to be imposed on us for 15 days back in April of 2020. Can I, can I just jump in and say two things? First, to your point, John, it's, it's really important to realize that, that the people who want to continue the permanent crisis and, and take advantage of it 
mainly politically, are happy to, to boast about unintended consequences of policies when it uh, aggrandizes to their own benefit. So in this case, look, there's there were fewer flu cases, too. This is so great. Whereas when unintended consequences are, for example, a rise in teen suicides and opioid addictions and all the other stuff we've seen come out of the pandemic, they don't even want to talk about it. But to Noah's point, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of on his cynical side on this. Look, my kids are fully vaccinated. They've been fully vaccinated. They still have to go through so much COVID safety theater in their high school because politically, the the people who run our schools in my city don't want to force vaccination on all the all the high schoolers because there are racial politics involved that they don't want to get anywhere near. So as a result, the people who do the right thing are punished. Our kids, you know, the, the kids homecoming dance, which was outdoors, got shut down early because the kids weren't keeping their masks on. I mean, ridiculous kind of heavy handed um treatment of children who who have done the right thing. So I'm with Noah, I'm kind of cynical that any of this stuff would ever actually for the five to 12 year olds change much. And all of this relates to Tevi's point in his article about the siloing of information in the medical community and sort of this ideological ante that you have to push into the table before you're taken seriously, which is the role that David Leonard plays at the New York Times, where he you know presents a very compelling evidence-based arguments against a lot of the COVID mitigation regime that we're still living with. But the ideological ante that you have to push into the table is a series of throat clearing paragraphs about how awful everybody who doesn't read the New York Times is. Then you get your readership to buy in. And then people like Zainab Tufeki, who had this perfectly reasonable observation that you've been saying now for months and months and months that maybe a lot of the slow uptake on the part of those who are still still objecting to being vaccinated is based on a fear of needles. Now that's just not, not compelling enough, not intellectually uh, experimental enough. It doesn't demonstrate your, your capacity for uh, you know, rationalization and your ability to navigate complex theories. And it's just, it's just too simple. So we need an article in the New York Times about how seeing smiles is important about how seeing facial expressions communicates uh, nonverbal cues in ways that the human species evolved to internalize and, and without which we are at sea socially. That's the sort of thing that you can't communicate because it's just, it's too base. It's too elementary. It needs to be dressed up in theory and polysyllabic jargon to be accepted by this community. More important, I think in this case, I just to jump off Christine's point is uh, Jacob Stern at the Atlantic and talk about how everyone should mask and stay home from work, uh, you know, when they have the sniffles or something like that. Once again, we have here an unbelievable class-based difference, which is that there were plenty of people who never stayed home from work in the United States. They're the people who make less money. They're the people who work with their hands. They're the people who deliver things and make things and make it possible for us to have things and all of that. And they never got to stay home. They never got to... to make those that choice and they may not be able to make that choice in the future because they work for small businesses that cannot afford to have people um you know working making um uh, what would you call it sort of like uh preemptive decisions on their health without real consequences so you know without saying you know i have 102 fever so i can't come in no no i sneezed this morning so just in just to make sure that you don't get the flu, I'm going to stay home, not COVID in this case, but the flu. And this is this is a real thing. I'll just tell you a quick story that happened to me last night. So last night, you know, Broadway is reopened. Last night, I went to the to the theater with my 15 year old daughter, went to see this uh, Temptations musical, Ain't Too Proud, which I strongly recommend to everybody. It has the some of the best dancing I've ever seen in any Broadway show. Imperial Theater, got tickets at TKTS, the half-price booth. We go to the theater. You have to be vaccinated to go to the theater. You have to show your vaccination card or your Excelsior Pass if you're in New York and you have the vaccination thing. But not only that, you have to show your card and you have to show ID, proving that you don't have somebody else's vaccine card, photo ID. So my daughter is 15. She doesn't have photo ID as it happens, and didn't have it with her. So we're standing there. She has, a, she has a vaccine pass on her phone. And the guy says, where's her photo ID? And I said, she's 15. She, does she have a school ID? Not with her. It's like, do you have her health care card? Anyway, as it happens, for bizarre reasons, I happen to have a photograph in my iPhoto's 
you know, come uh, relatively recently of her birth certificate because we had to get her a new passport. So I actually and the photo wasn't very good. I had to blow it up, show it to him. We're standing there on the street so that he it can be proved to this Schmendrick standing in front of the Imperial Theater that my 15 year old daughter was vaccinated when she had a vaccine thing on her phone that she hadn't stolen from somebody else. So this whole process, you go into the theater and then everybody has to wear a mask throughout the show. Every single person in the theater is vaccinated. And the proof is so necessary that I had to like pull out my daughter's birth certificate to show that she wasn't faking that she was somebody else. And you're sitting there for two hours in masks. Now, what the hell is that? You know what they say? You know what, what everybody says when you're CDC guidelines. We're following the CDC guidelines. Well, this is the ultimate point that you made about the CDC, Tevi, which is I'm not going to listen to the CDC next year when it tells me I have to do X, Y, or Z. I'm done. I, I've had enough. They are not a sort, they are not, as we used to say at the news magazines when you're a researcher, they are not a red check. They are not the ultimate authority. I do not trust them. I do not trust their public health advice. I learned this about the American Academy of Pediatrics when I had a little kid and they started telling you that, you know, no child could ever look at a screen until he was five without getting, you know, without having their IQ points lowered, you know, by 20, by 20%. So, and that's a, but the CDC is a public institution and my faith is now, sh is now shattered. We, we disregard, well, interrupt, reason. I'm sorry to interrupt, Tevi, but we disregard the CDC on a daily basis. If you live an enjoyable life, if you have an over easy egg, if you eat more than two, uh, two or you drink more than two alcoholic beverages in a sitting, if you have an, a medium rare steak, if you eat oysters, I mean, this is the sort of stuff that we all do constantly because we have an understanding of our own level of risk. Well, the, the difference now is enforcement, you know, uh, what we call or what they call guidelines now are often, you know, um, actually real world right. limits but they are still guidelines on, on our, on these are behavior. guidelines they're being treated as though they're they're absolute maxims by the institutions that say they're listening to them but the cdc presents guidelines i, I just want to make this point because as we get deeper into this it occurs to me that moving goalposts isn't the problem Mo moving goalposts um is the status quo and that's sort of always done um it, for for various reasons to try to advance one one aim or another um, what scares me, what I think is different, is the removing of goalposts. We've, we've sort of gotten rid of goalposts altogether. We're not actively moving toward a zero COVID goal. They don't say that. We don't know what we're moving to, what, what we're moving toward. It's, it's simply the sort of open-ended campaign of vigilance and threat mitigation. And there's no understanding of where it ends at all. I agree with almost everything that's been said thus far, especially on the CDC. And the CDC put itself in this situation. If you all recall, in the early days of the pandemic, they were adamant on no masks. And Dr. Redfield even was testifying before Capitol Hill was asked if somebody who's healthy should be wearing a mask. And he said no. And then it later came out that they were saying no masks because they were trying to hoard them for the frontline workers. Now, I understand it's important that frontline healthcare workers have those masks, but they could also have said, they could have been honest and said, we would prefer that medical grade masks are reserved for these frontline healthcare workers, but everybody else should try and find ways you can develop your own masks. I know sports teams started making masks out of Jersey material, underwear companies made it out of underwear material. I mean, the industriousness of the American people really can make and do great things when called to it. So I think the dishonesty on masks followed by the adamant turnaround where you must have a mask at all times, even if you're outdoors and 50 feet away from people and you'll be yelled at by a Karen if you are seen unmasked walking down the street. So I, I think that turnaround was problematic. I also think, and I mentioned this in the article, the adamant case against any gathering of any sort, a religious institution or even a grumble about the lockdowns in the early days was soundly denounced, roundly denounced by Democratic politicians and maybe public health officials. And then once the BLM riots happened, suddenly there was a letter from a thousand 
public health officials saying that this is an okay violation of the COVID strictures because this is for a political event that we agree with. And so you get the sense that it's not about what the health is. It's not a sense about what the science is, but it's about what are our political preferences at the moment. You missed one. <laughs> the CDC's reversal on masks in May, followed by a, a unqualified public relations campaign on the part of the very visible public health apparatus that we've been confronted with on a daily basis since 2020 saying, none of this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, successfully reversing that order. Around by me, there are still plenty of shops with the sign on the wall that says, the CDC now says you can take your mask off if you're unvaccinated. They never took down that sign in response to the changing of CDC guidelines because they prefer that guideline. They like that one. They're going to stick with that one. Now, look, I mentioned the Broadway theater, and I think that there is a commercial reason uh, for that uh, stricture. Um, Broadway wants to reopen. It is these are these are rooms of fifteen hundred very well healed people, uh, people who are are will be older rather than younger, and they have reason to believe that their audience are a bunch of neurotic lunatics and are happy and w- want this, and that if they don't have it. 40% of the audience will say, I'm not, I'm not going to come, that this is a way of creating comfort in a, in a very weird, uh, you know, industry that does not follow the same rules as other industries or have the same kind of audience as other industries, vastly wealthier, uh, far more uh, inclined uh, toward, uh, let's say, cultural liberalism than, than, a lot of other, than a lot of other institutions. And so, you know, if, if, these are, if these are sort of private rules, they're not entirely private rules, though, of course, because they're also following New York City rules. But, um, but a lot of this then comes to that kind of cultural signifying. And, and, and Tevi, um, you're an observant Jew, and I think there is some aspect of this. We, we know this in our, in our own community that... Um, uh, when you have something, uh, when you have uh, people who believe uh, in very formalized, strict observance, um, they actually are always looking to up their level of observance. There's often a kind of, um, there, there's, there's terminology for this, but um, it's a kind of when in doubt, don't do it. Or, you know, if there's a question, then you go to the strictest interpretation of the question in order to ensure that you are following the rules. Um, and this seems to have been massified, particularly in the upper middle classes, I would say. Yeah, I, I would say I've noticed this kind of a religious fervor among the people who are the most COVID sensitive. Uh, I call it glot COVID, like glot kosher. Yeah. Uh, the people are the absolute strictest. Uh, they, it's not necessarily about the data. It's not necessarily about the science. It's about making sure that there's no COVID germs that can ever get near them at any time. Right. Um, now, you know, one thing that will help us uh, to deal with all of this anxiety is getting out and seeing beauty in nature uh, where we can go without masks. And uh, that's why I want to talk to you about fastgrowingtrees.com because this is the perfect time to plant trees. It's the fall. Big box store experts might tell you you can do it anytime, but uh, let me tell you, the fall is the best time to plant. You know, you want to listen to me when it comes to horticulture. Because, uh, you know, I know more about this than anybody. I don't know anything about it, but I know what fastgrowingtrees.com is telling me. And what it's telling me is now is the time to go to fastgrowingtrees.com. No more waiting in lines, messy cars, digging through a luster selection. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants. Expertly curated to thrive in your area. Delivered to your door in one or two days. Are you looking for shade? Are you looking for privacy for fruit trees or just added color for your yard? If so, every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system ready to explode with new growth come spring. There's a better way to buy trees and shrubs and plants from your home and yard, fastgrowingtrees.com. Join over 1 million satisfied gardeners who, who are there and have used it. Plus, the 30-day live and thrive guarantee means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting now through November 30th. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary for 15% off. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Yes, uh, I, I, I added that proviso because, um, you know, 
we're very grateful to our advertisers, but they often ask me to talk about things in personal terms that I know absolutely nothing about living, having grown up in Manhattan and have lived except for two years of my life in apartments my whole life. I know nothing about trees and I wanted to, I, I want you to listen to me and do, you know, what, what our advertisers say, but there's a certain level of honesty or must apply here. And uh, that was uh, the, Christine's favorite uh, of all this is when, when I have to talk about bacon. That's a big one. We have one advertiser that offers you free bacon for a year and I can't have bacon in my house. So I will assume that it's absolutely wonderful. Um, but uh, but uh, these are these are some of the these are some of the problems that uh, that can come up uh, when you have um, a podcast that actually can generate uh, advertising. And we're very grateful to you guys for listening to us uh, in that regard. Tevi, you, I would, I would describe you not only as a contributor to commentary and, and a respected author important, but you're kind of a stand, you're kind of a podcast stand. You are like, you are like one of our, you're like one of our, one of our people. So um, let me ask you this, the, We've been talking about this, the uh, Soloveitchik roast coming up in a month. We are going to do some kind of a. Uh, you wanted to say vaudeville, didn't you? Vaudeville. <laughs> and um, here's my question. Should I attack Noah or should I just interrupt Abe every time that he, he talks so that he can't say anything? Or should I do both? Why not or, both? Yeah. What I really think you should do is you should play excerpts from the roast on the podcast. I think that would be <laughs> tremendous, but only selected ones because people should still should buy the ticket. Yeah, well, we might do that, but the you know podcast is famously off the the, the roast is famously off the record. Not, I believe that uh, we have public officials who are going to be you know spilling secrets about Mayor Soloveitchik uh, and his um, and his Strauss Center at Yeshiva University because I, I don't I don't really think that that is something that requires off the recordism, but as I think, I, I think I mentioned this the other day, but um, somebody wrote to us and said that um, he noticed that every time Christine talks, I then interrupt her and read an ad. And that this is very, um, sure, I don't real, like I'm the talks. real victim. I'm the real victim here. See, I just interrupted you to declare my own victimhood. It's true. Well, you should <laughs> be allowed to interrupt me. That's that's what I'm I'm trying to say because apparently I, I I I interrupt I interrupt you to do you know sort of like raw commerce benefits of sort of like warrior capitalism or predatory capitalism are interfering with your contributions to the to the podcast. Well, you know, my only complaint about this podcast and my role in it is that I'm still not referred to as Zarina. So that's my yeah. that's really my only beef with anyone on this podcast. So we're well, slouching I'm a fan of the podcast, towards... but I don't keep statistics on who gets interrupted when I just I just like to listen. So oh, our audience guys should keep it up. <laughs> so we're slouching towards taking listener suggestions for this segment. Uh, I could drive up interest in the in the in the roast, but I'm terrified of what those suggestions might be yeah anyway email us at podcast at uh, at commentary.org uh, with your suggestions on how we can make fun of ourselves at the roast and maybe if you have a really good suggestion we will share with you the results of your suggestion uh at the end of november after after we have finished this event again go to commentary.org slash roast 21 for information on how to attend the roast of Mayor Sully Soloveitchik. And Tevi Troy, thank you so much for joining us today uh, as ever. And uh, please go to commentary.org to read Tevi's article, Wokeness MD, as part of our Woke the Threat package. Uh, tomorrow, um, if all goes well, and sometimes it doesn't, uh, we should have on David Zucker, uh, the legendary uh, writer, director of uh, comedies ranging from Kentucky Fried Movie to The Naked Gun to Airplane uh, to Scary Movie 3 to a lot of other things. Um, his article also in this package uh, called Destroying Comedy, uh, which in light of everything that's gone on with Dave Chappelle over the last week and a half is well worth your time as it would have been without Dave Chappelle and the and the controversy that has erupted around him over the last week. Uh, but please do go read Tevi's article, Wokeness MD, along with um, 
Uh, Sam Abrams and Jack Wertheimer on wokeness and the threat to the Jewish people. Michael Lewis on wokeness and its threat to language. Jim Meggs on the great woke, uh, on the original parody of wokeness, uh, the Alan Sokol uh, uh, scholarly hoax article and how Sokol won the battle and lost the war since everything that his article effectively predicted 25 years ago has come to pass uh, in, 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 in the scholarly uh, academic pursuits. Uh, I'm probably missing something. Uh, Barry Weiss on courage and coward cowardice. Um, that's our woke, the threat issue. It's right there, commentary.org. Please go to subscribe. Again, Tevi, thanks so much. And for Abe Christina No, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.